welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today I'm delighted to welcome the internationally renowned cellist Stephen Isselis. Stephen appears regularly with the world's leading orchestras, devises chamber music programmes and performs around the world as a soloist. His Hyperion recording of the Bach cello suites met with universal critical acclaim. Last year, he published a book about the cello suites. He's also the author of two children's books, Why Beethoven Threw the Stew and Why Handel Waggled His Wig, and of Robert Schumann's Advice to Young Musicians. He's artistic director of the International Musicians Seminar at Prussia Cove in Cornwall. In this podcast, he talks about confidence and how to focus on what you love. Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, Stephen. I'm really, really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you. So, am I right in thinking you're in Mannheim at the moment? Mannheim, yes. And you are performing the Dvorak Cello Concerto, which next year you will have been performing for 50 years? How did you know that? Well, obviously, I've done my research. You have, you have. Oh, I'm so old. It's horrible. <laughs> yes, it's true. I was just thinking that as I was playing it because we played it last night as well. Uh, yes, it's true. And how can you sum up for a music ignoramus how over a period of 50 years a performance of one piece of music changes in the hands of a virtuoso like you well i've sort of i usually describe it as you don't feel it changing it's like you don't feel yourself aging really and then one day you look in the mirror and you look at an old photo you realize you've changed a lot and it's the same with interpretation i mean i first played this piece when i was 14 at a festival in austria my teacher's festival and i mean there's probably some it's I'm sure it's the same voice because I have the same voice, basically. But I think actually it's got a lot sadder since then. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to think of this basically joyous work, which it certainly does have joy. But there's also a lot of elegiac regret there. And I guess that's grown over the years because that's what happens to us all. Mm-hmm. We get sadder and, in my case, sillier. Um, and... I guess values changed. I suppose the tone colors changed to reflect the different emotions I feel. Um, but I love it. Just it was my favorite piece of music, I think, there or when I was about 12, anyway. Um, I wouldn't describe it as my very favorite piece of music now, but I love it just as much as I did then. Mm. Just other works as well. <laughs> it's interesting. I found researching this interview an absolute de- delight, but it also made me quite sad you know reading your children's books and reading your wonderful book about the cello suites and realizing that there is this whole language that really I know almost nothing about and in the introduction to why Beethoven threw the stew you say music is a sort of magic and there is something more magical about music than any other language but most of us don't speak that language does that make you sad well, there's lots of different aspects to that. First of all, you don't need to to know about music in order to understand it or to enjoy it. I mean, it's two remarks come to mind there. Apparently, one of Picasso's many girlfriends said to him, oh, Pablo, I love your work, but I don't understand it. And he said, well, do you like Serrano Ham? Oh, I adore it. Do you understand it? So, you know, you can love it without so-called understanding it. And then my friend Olli Mustanen, a pianist, composer and conductor from Finland, he once said very memorably to me, he said that somebody who says they don't go to hear classical music because they don't understand enough about classical music, it reminds him of somebody who says, oh, I won't go for a walk in the forest because I don't know enough about botany. Mm. So you can enjoy it. And of course, the more you understand it, the more you know it, the more you'll get out of it. But mm don't need a degree in music in order to understand yeah i interviewed um artists in you know across the arts for many years but i don't think i do think music is in a separate category i mean i'm no specialist in the visual arts but i think i think articulating what happens in a painting even though it's difficult 
or in a piece of dance or something, even though those are non-verbal art forms, I think music is a whole different language. And I think that kind of um, set, kind of presents a whole range of challenges. I think it means that it offers possibly a depth that isn't quite available to other art forms. I don't know because I don't know the language. I don't speak the language. Words are my thing. Literature has been literature and language has been the thing I've devoted my professional life to. But you were brought up speaking that language. It was in your mind and heart and blood from a very early age. And of course, you can't imagine not speaking that language because you have always spoken it, maybe. Yeah, but well, we've just said so much, but there's so much to comment on. Yes, you may feel you don't understand, but you say you listen to it all, all the time. So obviously you do understand it. If you love it, you understand it. Understand something about it. Of course, I will understand it from a musician's point of view, which is very different. And I think when, I mean, I've read countless novels with descriptions of music and musicians in them. And it's very rare that a musician is writing. And we do, I suppose, write about music in a different way. With less, I mean, I find that a lot of writers, including Proust, but a lot of others as well, just sort of put music on this pedestal as this sort of mystic thing. And it really isn't for us. I mean, as you say, it's a language. It's it's talking about everyday things, but in a way that you can't sort of pigeonhole um, as you can language, as you're mentioned with language. I suppose in that way, it's more like poetry than prose can be. Um, but there's nothing sort of mystic or incredibly sacred about it. I mean, if you, you know, it's just everyday emotions just spoken, just described in a very magical language, I think. Um, yes, I was brought up in a, in a household where music was all around us every day. I mean, my father was a keen amateur violinist. My mother was a pianist, piano teacher. Uh, my sister, Annette, my older sister is a violist. The middle sister, Rachel, was a violinist. Our dog used to sing on a regular basis. He was the most expressive of us all, I think. Um, and so, yeah, music was all around. But it's not a mystic thing. It's just, I mean, it's a mixture. You sort of, I think you should approach it as a player anyway. It was sort of a mixture of a religion. They were, the composers are somehow sacred. The scores are sacred. And science, mm. it's very obvious. Take time there, then you don't take time there. You know, if you... Um, if that key that key sounds happy and another key sounds sad, you reflect that in the colours. Yeah, it's very logical. Religion and science, that's, that's a fascinating combination. And so tell me, what about, presumably, did your mother teach you the piano? Mm, not much. She was, she was lost. Her, she was very good with her students, but all three of us, she would lose her temper with us. So <laughs> we went to somebody else. And what about practice? So you were... You, were you six when you started playing the cello? That seems extremely young. Um, is it? Hmm. Is it not? No, I mean, again, you know, it's it's like learning a language. If you learn it as a mm. child, you can speak it without accent. But it became very natural for me to play the cello because I did start. Mm. Um, no, I think that's. I mean, there's many people who start much younger than that. Three, four. I think that's two. two most in most cases, two. Wow. Years. But a six, yeah, six is about right. I think six, seven, eight. And what about, about practice? Right. Obviously, that's a huge part of any musician's life or anyone learning an instrument. Most children resist practice, homework, any of these things. How were you about all of that? I mean, presumably pretty good, but how and why were you? Well, I was quite spoiled because my parents would sit with me and practice, which unfairly meant they wouldn't sit well my my sister I know it was a boarding school by then but um, my sister Rachel often had to practice by herself which is very unfair uh, in retrospect um so I was a spoiled brat and they helped me and then eventually I sort of you know, took over by myself. well it went through stages sometimes I would practice manically because I would get all fired up and sometimes the opposite when I first I left school when I was 14 and I lived at home for a year taking taking lessons with my teacher in Ladbroke Grove. Well, that year, I didn't do enough practice. I was sort of free from school, and then I'd wait for my mother to go out, and I would go to the local library and read everything I could about the Marx Brothers, but make sure I was back in time for her coming home and practicing. So she thought I'd been doing it all day. I had not. 
Well, you know, I think a lot of people go through phases like that. They go off it, they go on it. Why did you leave school? Because I needed more time to right. practice. Right. Yeah, if I was going to be a cellist, I needed better. I'm very glad I didn't go to a music school because I'm very mixed feelings about those music specialist schools. I went to the City of London School, which is... Um, which was a lovely school, very musical, very arts-oriented, but not specialist. And that was good. And they you know, very understanding. They gave me time off. They let me give up all science subjects, so I understand nothing about science, in order for me to do my homework during the day. So in the evenings, I could have cello lessons and practice and whatever. And did you ever waver from your plan to devote your life, your professional life, to music? Not yet. Not really. I think... The moment I really committed was the moment I realized I wasn't any good at anything else. Um, it, does, it does sort of help your decision. Um, but no, I never really... I mean, of course, I'd, I wanted to be a writer as well, which I sort of am about you know, four books now. Um, but basically, it was obvious. I was, I was going to play the cello. It's my natural meteor. And it's funny because I'm hopeless with my hands at anything Ooh. else. Yeah, awful. But my writing's terrible. I can't draw, I you know, drop things, etc. But I can't understand why everybody can't play the cello. It seems to me that's the natural thing to do with one's hands. The life of a professional musician for most is pretty tough and obviously insecure. And in your 20s, as for most young musicians, it wasn't particularly easy. And I read you had a period of discouragement, if not depression. Could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, some people, you know, they will, they have success very early and it keeps on. And some people have success very early and they drop out. You just suddenly realize you hadn't heard about them in years. Um, and I was the opposite. I had very little success in my, before I, things started to happen a bit when I was about 25. I think I made my first recording, but still it was very slow. I remember on my 30th birthday thinking, God, I just haven't made it. It hasn't happened. I was very depressed. And that year, um, I changed management, got a much better management. Um, just, I don't know, I got a record contract, I think. And my late wife became pregnant. So it was, you know, it was good. It's better than being all happy on your birthday and then depressed for the rest of the year. That was definitely a year of growth. And you, you write with such passion in your two children's books about your love of children. And uh, that it just shines through. And in fact, I found those two books the best introduction to music, classical music I've ever read. It just it was pitched at exactly the right level for me. <laughs> but... A lot of adults say that. Well, of course, me too. I mean, basically, as I'm sure you know, when one writes, one writes for oneself. Yes. One writes about things that you write about things that interest yes. you. Yes. So you just hope that it'll interest other people as well. How has the work you've done with children, writing those books and uh, the other work you've done with children, how has that changed your understanding of music, if at all? Hmm, it's a good question. I think it made me feel how much simpler it is than one might think. I mean, I gave all these children's concerts and beginning maybe I played sort of children's pieces and then I stopped that. I would play... You know, Beethoven sonatas and things, movements from Beethoven. I would play shorter. I wouldn't play a whole Beethoven sonata, but I'd play one fairly substantial movement. And as long as I talked about it and sort of got their interest in some way, like for instance, I played, there's five Beethoven sonatas for cello and piano or piano and cello. Um, there are two ones from his early period. There's one from his middle period and there's two from his late period where he became quite mystic. And I played one of those, the first moment, one of those. And I just talked to the children. I said, listen, this is sort of beginning is heaven. And then it goes, becomes angry. It goes into hell, and, which I think is true. Um, and they listen wonderfully. And the children are so honest. There's always a noise going on, but that's fine. If they like it, you know it. If yeah. they don't like it, you know yeah. it. Um, but no, I used to love my children's concept. I've done one for a bit. Um, but um, yeah, it was great. And I remember... At the Wigmore Hall once giving two two concerts. One was for on a Saturday morning for basically for private school kids and you know people who would normally be going to music school that day. But on the Friday, the day before, I gave it for state schools. And actually the state schools was an even better audience. They were wonderful. They were so good. Mm. Uh, 
I like, I like the comments. I like the questions. I love, and I love having children in the front row of a concert because, you know, I'm so scared about having a memory lapse or making a mistake or something. And I look at them. They couldn't mm. care less. They're just here. That's actually I find very reassuring and comforting. Um, you've talked you've talked to various interviews about your fear of memory lapses, and you've even said you won't play the cello suites, the Bach cello suites, again because of your fear of one. Is that true? Do you still feel that you won't? Absolutely true. Yeah, oh. I'm quite happy to play them. In I played them. I recorded them. I wrote a book about them. It's enough. Right. It's just such. Oh. I don't know. Because I feel such responsibility. I love them so much. I thought, oh, I'm going to let them down if I have memory lapse. So I decided. This is do I actually have possibly the biggest successes I ever had was playing the Bach mm. Suites, but torture for me because I think, oh, I'm going to forget the note. I'm going to forget the next note. And it never really relaxed through the concert. And, um, and I thought, I don't have to do this. <laughs> There are, you know, there's a lot of other music I can do. On the other hand, prob- probably my favourite thing to do, and I haven't done it now for some years because of COVID, and I haven't done it since COVID, is the Beethoven cycle, the cycle of those five sonatas I, I mentioned. That's also, and that's an incredible set of music and a real journey as all the Bach suites. That I love to do. But it's different. I play from music. I have somebody else on stage with me. So I just find it less scary. Mm. I mean, I'm, I was so fascinated that you have talked about sort of your irritation with very confident musicians. And I was surprised to read, actually, that there are confident musicians because all the great artists I've ever interviewed have been riddled with self-doubt. I thought that was kind of the precondition of the artist, really. Um, Mm -hmm. How is it possible? I mean, you know, we've seen in what's happened in our government in the last few weeks what happens when you have supremely confident but, alas, ill-qualified people in charge. Um, have there been some problems in the government? Wow. <laughs> yes, I know. It's strange, isn't it, Stephen? That's... Lucky you're not in the country at the moment and living in a complete bubble. <laughs> but, um, so so tell me about confidence, doubt and art, because um, it, I find it fascinating that one comes across all these kind of self-help books for business uh, written by sports people, all about, you know, getting in the zone and getting your confidence and visualising success and positive thinking. And I always think this is the exact opposite of what it takes to to produce art. Tell, tell me what you think about confidence and doubt. Maybe I, should, maybe I should write a book about negative. Well, I have, I have actually, I have actually Where suggested it? it to agents and there hasn't, I've been told there would be no market for it. <laughs> you never know. It might be. I know my my little mantra always before I go on stage is I hate life. Life hates me. <laughs> my friends are used to it now. Before we go on stage. Um, well, yeah, my my late friend Lars Vogt, the pianist, wonderful guy, just died a few yeah. weeks ago at the age of fifty-one. Um, he said, he said, when a musician is overconfident, I'm bored by the time they get. You know, they get, by the time they walk to the centre of the platform, <laughs> I'm bored. And he's so right, I think. But it doesn't, I mean, success, if people are confident, they can convince people. I mean, you know, a lot of very successful musicians are very confident. Yeah. And I don't think my, you know, fear of memory lapses and things is a good thing on the whole. I mean, I would rather be playing the Bach Suites in public, but um, I'd rather I didn't have that amount of self-doubt but I do but on the other hand it means I always care passionately yes. I, I never get sort of complacent I don't think um because I'm always scared almost always scared. um so there's two sides to yeah. it and I think one should fight the negative but not to have it in the first place to think I know how this piece goes this is how it goes is for me, very superficial, yeah. not interesting. It's an incredibly complicated balancing act for everyone, isn't it? That kind of moment where you're teetering on either side of it, where the self-doubt becomes paralyzing or, or where the confidence leads. And I love that idea, leads to a boring, boring performance or something. I think that's so interesting because it's like writing. Boring, but not necessarily unsuccessful. Yeah. I mean, I see people come on stage like that and, oh God, and they play in a way I can't stand and the audience can go mad. It's interesting. Um, when I was writing columns at The Independent, I was lucky to be allowed to write kind of what I wanted. And and I never knew, 
I would have people write to me and say, oh, I didn't know where this was going to lead. And I thought, well, that's because I didn't know. When I started writing, I didn't know what conclusion I was going to come to. And then there was a change of regime. And then you had to give the headline before you wrote the piece. And in my view, that just kills it. Because if you know what you're going to say, there's no point in doing it. That's interesting. Yeah, I can imagine. That's how we exactly. met. Sort of we. Exactly. Exactly. Even though we never have I met. Sorry. I just read one of your articles about David Cameron rolling up his sleeves. I thought it was. Oh, so was funny. it that one? I, I'd, I'd forgotten. And you very kindly sent me, incredibly generously sent me your award-winning recording of the Bach cello suites, and which is, you say it's the greatest piece of music ever written. Well, I say I think that when I'm yeah. playing it. Yeah. That's a, that's a yeah. I would make, but um, yeah. I mean, I, I adore it, and in fact, I. I played it at my didn't play it but you know I had a recording of it at, at my book launch um my latest book launch um in February can you for for someone who doesn't know it can you try I know it's impossible to sum up a word of genius like saying so why is Shakespeare good but can you have a go at summarizing why it's so wonderful well I think you have to remember there's just one instrument it's a cello one player nothing else there so it's got incredible simplicity and intimacy and starting from that, it takes us on the most, I mean, it, I say there's six mm. of them, that's they take us on the most amazing journey from the beginning is very calm. The first, the prelude, the first movement of the first suite is calm, comforting, reassuring. It's perhaps the most popular of all the movements of the suite. It's just so beautiful. And then it takes us through everything, humor, tragedy, it's absolute darkness. The fifth suite is in C minor, which I think is a representation of the story of the passion. And then you get into the sixth suite, which starts with these joyous bell peals, which again, I think um, depicts the resurrection. Um, and it just takes us within this one instrument with four strings and a bow without any special effects. You know, you don't play on the bridge, you don't use pizzicato, nothing. It's just, there's that's just a basic cello sound. And he takes us through this magical, incredible journey. And there's lots of humor. I mean, they're, they're dance suites. Each, apart from the prelude, each movement has a dance title. It's based on a dance. Um, so there's simplicity and there's immediacy. But there's also incredible depth. Mm. Completely unknown for 100 years. Incredible. Incredible. The next 100 years. Incredible. And you, I know Bach is your number one. He's my number one as well. I mean, I, I was really interested to read um, in your your wonderful book about the suites, Four Cells, or Four Cell, I don't know how you pronounce it, a counter-bar playing, if he wished to express deep emotion, he did not strike the notes with great force. And I thought that's exactly right. I mean, obviously, I have no idea how Bach played or didn't play, but it seems to me that's what I love about him, that sense of restraint, that great artists, it's the restraint, not the hyperbole that moves you ultimately. Yeah. It's a holding back and when he does unleash the forces it's terrifying yes. i remember i was reading persuasion by jane austen and there's a scene you know where one of the girls falls over a parapet and they said um it says the girl appeared quite lifeless I went, oh my god yeah i just went absolutely like that because you don't expect that in yes. jane austen he does put something like that god it really has an effect and Bach, you know, he has this sublimity, but there are moments of anger, and they really tell. You, yeah. you also say, in your advice about performance, you say, make sure that the vibrato comes from your heart, not just your finger. And again, to me, that sums up something about craft and technique, that once you have mastered the technique, then, then, then and only then, can you have the necessary hotline to the heart where yes that's true you have enough well talking for about you have enough control to use it only when you mean it mm. it's i don't know it's technique it's also emo you know it's emotional control it's just about sincerity yeah yeah that's what i'm talking about there and what ha but, what happens uh, for example if you've had a bad night's sleep or you've had a row with your girlfriend or you know or something or you've had a big tax bill or something unexpected how do you manage to not let that leak into a performance you try and 
make it into a positive force. <laughs> I did actually have a very bad night's sleep, not last night, but the night before last. And I had to play the Dvorak concerto last night for the first time for some time. And then, you know, and I was upset about something and um, I just put it into the piece. Mm. Um, because Dvorak is very upset <laughs> in that piece because his sister-in-law, with whom he always seemed to have been in love, when he wrote the first three movements, she was very ill. And then he was in America and then he went back to Prague and she died. So then he added a coda at the last moment as a sort of memorial to her, quoting her favorite song of his. And um, yeah, there's always room in music for that. It's funny, actually, interestingly, I think I was listening this morning as I did my ablutions to Furtwängler, the great German conductor, conducting in Berlin in 1943, Beethoven's Fourth Symphony. I thought, this is interesting. You can imagine the audience. And uh, boy, boy, I mean, that is not a dark piece, but he finds something dark there. It's very interesting. I certainly wouldn't play it like that myself, but it's really got a power that I didn't think was in that, that sort of power was in that piece. Mm. And you're sitting in a hotel room, as you do a lot as a musician, except during COVID or the worst of the pandemic, which obviously was a whole other thing. I mean, it's an unusual life. How did what effect, if any, did that have on your family life when when your son was a child? Well, yeah, it was hard to leave him sometimes. It really was hard. But he was very philosophical about it because his mother was always there for him, and she understood. I mean, of course, she was frustrated. I was away so much, um, but she absolutely understood, and she looked after him brilliantly. So I think I was very lucky in that way that she was so devoted to him and so intelligent and understood that was my life. You know, we needed it for every reason. Um, so, yeah, there are challenges, shall we say. But, um, you know, my son still lives in the same house. He lives upstairs with his fiancée. And um, so... You know, I can't say we're, we're estranged at all. <laughs> he's, he's an amazing boy. Aww. And you, you clearly have met, in fact, sadly, you seem to be constantly writing um, obituaries for, for musicians who have died. But um, your touring life has enabled you to meet and become friends with many of the world's greatest musicians. So that clearly is a big plus. And obviously mm -hmm. it earns you a living and that's a big plus. But... On the other hand, it's a lot of traveling, a lot of jet lag. Presumably, it's you know can be a bit lonely. What's the good side of touring, and what's what? What are the biggest downsides for you? The good sides are that I see my friends in different cities. Um, you know, they, they pop up, and I'm going to New York tomorrow, um, and I'll see friends. I'm only there for a couple of days, but I'll see friends in New York, and then I go to Canada, and I'll see friends there, and so on. Uh, which I love. That's great. And I like, you know, play for different audiences. I was just in Japan. The audiences are so special. Actually, they're lovely here last night too. German audiences can be fantastic. Um, so that's nice. And um, downsides are jet lag, sleepless nights. Mm. I hate those. Mm. And I have a lot of them. And yes, sometimes loneliness, but I don't usually allow myself to get too lonely. You know, there's always the phone and Skype and things. Um, yeah, I mean, it's relationships can be a little sporadic, I suppose, but um, um, but they're not. You know, I mean, just spending time together um, can be a little rare. Mm. But try and make the most of it when you can. Um, and. There's nothing else I'd rather do. I always remember J.K. Rowling saying, being interviewed, saying, you really want to be a writer, don't you? And you, and you. <laughs> because she can't imagine wanting to be anything else. And I can't really imagine wanting to be anything else but a cellist with writing as a as Exactly, a exactly. And, and a very kind of central sideline. So where does the writing fit in for you and how does it feel in comparison with the music? Um... It's all the same thing. It's communicating about music or communicating the actual music. It all feels really organic, 
you know, I love to write about music and talk about music and try and, you know, make people understand it better or make it more enjoyable for them, whether they be children or adults. Um, I love all that. And then, you know, I'm also trying to communicate the story of the music when I play it. So it's really not that different. And I've also written the text for three musical children's stories mm. with music by Anne Dudley. I don't know if you know her. No, I read that you've done that. I was intrigued by that. Interesting. I quite proud of those. They haven't really taken off, but they've done a lot in Hungary for some reason. Um, I hope they'll be recorded at some point. I don't know. This just hasn't happened yet. Um, but I'm quite proud of them. There's Little Red Violin, Goldie Pegs and the Three Cellos, and Cinderella. Maybe they're not as funny as I think they are, but kids do seem to like them because, you know, they tell the story, stories, but just with instruments as the characters. Well, as you say, children are the ones who give, you know, the heartfelt reaction on the whole. So if they like them, they presumably are funny. They seem to, yes. Mm. And what about your teaching, the masterclasses you do? How do you find those? Do you enjoy teaching? Oh, yeah. I love working with young people. I mean, either teaching or playing chamber music with young people. I do both. Uh, I do a lot of masterclasses. It's true. Guest masterclasses when I travel. Or I'm also, I'm artistic director of the International Musician Seminar. Sounds very grand. In Prussia Cove, Cornwall. And I go there twice a year, once to teach, once to play chamber music with the younger people. And I love that. It's a very important part of my life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's my duty to pass on what I was taught. I had some great teachers, you know, really, um, you know, great musicians, rare musicians. And they taught me a lot. And I do feel it's my duty to pass it mm. on. Is there any part of your professional life you really don't like? Or which parts do you like less? Checking in with the cello. Mm. At airports and security at airports. I hate that. With good reason. Although I did have a good experience coming out here. I better make the most of it. I probably won't have another one for 10 years. The lady was really nice about the cello. What's a good experience and what's the worst experience you've had? Well, the good experience is, well, just two days ago, she said, she said, oh, I said, I've got two for me and my cello. And she said, where is he? And he was on the floor, so she couldn't see it. So I said, he's down there. How do you know to call him he? She said, because last time you checked in with me, you corrected me. I called it. it. I called the chair. <laughs> then she said, she printed out the boarding passes without difficulty, which was great. She said, you're in 16E and my friend is in 16F. <laughs> this is a woman I can do business with. The worst is oh, British Airways and KLM. I mean, British Airways, countless times I've gone in and I know because I have a brilliant travel agent that he's done it right and they can't check in the cello and i missed many flights because of it and klm are even worse in fact klm just won't now accept a cello booking which is awful. Uh, but british air is pretty bad too and the trouble is you never see the person with whom you should be furious because of course it's not the check-in mm. agent's fault they just you know there's something wrong in the system and i spent hours and hours and you know then waiting they I have to go and buy a whole new flight, which, of course, British Airways eventually have to refund because in the end they realise it's their fault, although they won't admit it at the time. And, oh, a nightmare. And it also makes me furious because I'm going to lose my silver card because I've had to abandon British Airways and go on to Star Alliance whenever I can, um, which is very annoying because it makes a difference when you spend as much time at airports mm-hmm. as I do. Cards do make a difference. And um, so you... The, you gave back the um, I can't but it's called the the Fireman's You've really done your I'm research. I'm a journalist, Stephen. Of course, I've done that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, a I can't imagine how nerve wracking it must be traveling with a Stradivarius, and b I would really like to understand the relationship you have with your different cellos. Can you? Well, that. first thing I say, it is scary, but it's scarier traveling with a baby or a young child. <laughs> <laughs> That's more well, the nightmares I used to have, what would happen to Gabriel? Did uh, but I also do have nightmares about the cello being broken or something a lot. But you can't, you just can't think about mm. it after a bit. Like, mad. You just have to take sensible precautions, make sure it's okay, and hope for the best. And yeah, they're very, they're different souls, these two these cellos it's amazing i mean i now have access to five cellos that's a bit ridiculous isn't it but i have 
the one I play mostly, which is the Marquis de Coburon Stradivarius, but that's owned by the Royal Academy of Music. Um, so it'll never be mine. I couldn't possibly afford it. But then I do have a cello that I started buying in 98, I think. Um, that's now mine. Oh. That's a couple of months. Mm, they're exciting. Uh, 2022 is finally mine. Uh, Montignana, which is a very different beast. It's much tougher. And I have new, t- most, almost all cellists and violinists these days use steel strings, which are, as sort of the name implies, harder, more brilliant. Um, and they came in gradually more and more after the Second World War. But before that, my players, who mostly my favorite players, played before the Second World War used gut strings which come from sheep little sheep and i still use those on the stradivarius because i think the sound is so much more human it's, it's my sound for most music you know, the the montagnon i use for some 20th century harder concertos it's better for those um but i also have two modern cellos that the makers gave me and then i've never completely sort of let go of my first cello or not my first cello but one of the first cello I really loved which is a Guadagnini and that is mostly played by my sort of bestest friend David Waterman who was cellist was cellist of the Endelian Quartet now retired and he plays it most of the time but I can still play it when I want because I still own quite a substantial part of it and that's a beauty I play that in Prussia Cove it's a beautiful cello it's just not quite loud enough for for big halls but it's a gorgeous cello so and all those cellos are completely different from each other mm-hmm. and maybe the most striking thing is when i when i still had the foreman stradivarius but was starting to play the marcus de Cobra, i played them side by side at the royal academy of music and it's extraordinary because it's it's my sound of course you know i make my sound in my own way but these different souls they were so different it was just it's impossible to describe it Except by saying they have different souls, completely different personalities. It's like, you know, two children come out from the same parents, mm. utterly different. It's the same. Your grandfather uh, was a pianist and composer and amazingly was uh, sent by um, Lenin to represent Russian culture and uh, to yes. Vienna in 20, was it 20, 1922, was it? And and defected, um, and there is, and then tried to find a flat. Tell us the story of uh, <laughs> the landlady he met. How many thousand times I've told this story, but my I've told it much more than my father ever did. But he told it to us. The, they got to my. They were going to go to America, where my grandfather had only played once, recommended by Skriavin. Um, anyway, they got to Vienna. He gave some concerts there. They were very successful. And people said, you should settle here and make a life here. And he thought, why not? And it's actually, you know, it's closer to Russia, which I suppose he thought he would probably go back to. Um, so he did settle in Vienna, but that meant he needed an apartment. So they went looking for an apartment. And my father had the vaguest memory of this. Maybe he reconstructed it, whatever. And this housefrau was 102 years old and she stroked his hair, ruffled his hair apparently and was very friendly until my grandfather said look I'm a musician I'll have to practice the piano is that okay nope I won't have musicians I hate musicians why do you hate musicians because when I was a little girl my aunt had a lodger who was a filthy old man used to spit all over the floor and I hated him do you know who that was Beethoven (laughs) so my father met somebody who met Beethoven absolutely incredible really astonishing and um, obviously, you know, well, I, I can't, I, Russia is going through one of its many tragic phases of history. I imagine you feel that even more, I don't know if you feel that more intensely than the rest of us. I think probably most people feel pretty heart sick about it. But I just wondered, for those of us who, of kind of migrant heritage, however recent, or pass. I wondered what your relationship was like with Russia. Well, I was fascinated to go there. I was dying to go there when it was Soviet times, because then it was a, like another planet. Very few people went there that I knew of. I, mean, I suppose there were, there certainly were people who went, but it really it was, the Iron Curtain really existed, especially for Russia itself. And it was very rare to get a chance to play concerts there. And then suddenly in 1984, this invitation came. Um, 
to do a tour there. And it was fascinating. I mean, it was awful in a way. I got the most dreadful food poisoning I've ever had in my life, Campylobacter. It was awful. Um, luckily, it didn't strike till I got back. But we were really cut off there. There was no question of calling home or anything. And the first thing that happened at the airport, my wallet was stolen. So that wasn't a great start. And you know, every time you went into a restaurant and started talking English, some man would would approach from another table and offer to sell you rubles on the black market. And you know, there was certainly sinister things going on. I remember going on an Aeroflot flight with I mean internal flight with my cello. And I just had to hold it between my knees, didn't get another seat. And if we were rocking around, I was Protecting the cello as best I could, um, all sorts of disastrous things. But when you got to the concert and a few people you met, I must say mostly women, most <laughs> the men seem to be criminals, well, mayors or petty criminals, and the women, it's a very sexist and, <laughs> and sort of generalization. But a lot of the women were just saints, um, including the babushkas sitting on the, you know, every hotel corridor had this old babushka sitting there, sort of minding the corridor, making sure you didn't. I remember practicing one night in, can't remember where it was, one of the places, knock on my door. And this babushka came in and said, with a whole tray of tea and cakes and things, yes, you're because <laughs> she'd enjoyed my practice. She gave me this tea and cakes. I always remember that. And then the audiences weren't necessarily very big. Of course, they'd never heard of me. Um, but, oh, boy, they needed music. You just had this feel, this desperate. It wasn't even they were particularly quiet. There's just this absolute concentration, this passion for the music. It was wonderful. Probably. I was actually in Odessa, where my father was born. I was in Odessa for when Brexit happened. I remember all too clearly, but I loved Odessa. And you mentioned that Brexit happened while you were, or the vote happened while you were in Odessa. Clearly, you are making your touring life work, but for many musicians, it's been absolutely catastrophic. Mm, um, well, it's get, it's getting easier now. Is it getting better? I think so. Yeah, but yeah. Good. I'm I'm glad. <laughs> talking politics, but I can say I'm not a Brexiteer now. But. No. I did manage to get an Austrian passport because my father had to leave in 38. Right. So that my life much easier. Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously the other sort of big thing that struck musicians and all the performing arts was the pandemic. And you wrote some anguished blogs during that time um, and offered a kind of, you know, yourself and others the kind of talking to about, particularly during the spring lockdown last year about, because I think, you know, there was this almost blitz spirit during the early ones. And then it's like, oh, God, here we go again. And um, and you talked about sort of setting achievable goals. And presumably you wrote your, your Bach book. Yeah, that then, never would have written without lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, and, and I, I remember, I think you said at the time, because nobody knew what would happen. And clearly the pandemic hasn't exactly gone, but we are living with COVID, although some people are continuing to pay quite a heavy price for it at the time many fewer. sorry many fewer people i mean it's yeah I mean, many fewer those, many many fewer oh yes yeah, we will never get rid of flu either no um but you talked about at the time you you said music may never go back to being what it was which thank goodness it it sort of pretty much has yeah. but how did you what did you think at that time because that must have been a kind of unimaginable thought maybe i never quite believed it um I don't know. I just focused on work. I wrote that book about the Bach Suites. I made a solo disc for Hyperion of British solo cello music, which again, I never would have done without lockdown. And I just worked. I learned in a few new pieces. I just worked as hard as if you know everything was happening because otherwise I knew I would sink into a black pit of depression. And I don't think I did um, because I had these goals. And, um, I sort of, well, I started out writing a novel, which I don't know if I'll ever finish. I might go back to it, but I haven't yet because I haven't had time. And because <laughs> trouble is, if you, that's why I don't compose. If you spend your life reading truly great literature and you write yourself, I can write about music because so few people do. But to write a novel is maybe just silly because it will never be 
anything like the same level of books I like to read. Um, yep, that is the trouble. That is the trouble <laughs> for all of us. For all of us. Something of a plot. I mean, I can. What I can do is describe concert. I mean, of course, it's about a cellist. I can describe rehearsals and concerts and things from the inside, so I don't get it wrong, mm. really, as it is. So I remember that my son really wants me to go on with it. He loved it, which is, you know, he doesn't love everything I do. Um, but he did love that, so I might. But anyway, that also kept me busy. And just to keep busy was the main thing. Just keep your head down. Just assume things work out in the end because they have to. You have time. reached pretty much as, uh, you know, the sort of acme in your field um and and other field related fields what ambitions do you still have well to do more of the same is a big thing you know i like to i like what i do and i don't want that to change of course the more great orchestras and great musicians i can play with the better um but also, I mean, I suppose there's two composers I just have a sort of missionary zeal for, and that's Robert Schumann, particularly his late works, and Gabriel Faure. Of course, they're both very, very famous names, but actually, very, very small part of their of their output is popular, is heard regularly. And you know, I love the late music of Schumann. Schumann ended very, very tragically. He went mad. He had almost certainly tertiary syphilis. And he ended his life in an asylum. It's dreadful way. It's just awful story. And his late music, people have often written off saying, oh, he was going mad. It's weak. And it actually isn't. It's very different from his early music, but I find it absolutely fascinating, incredibly beautiful and incredibly powerful. So, you know, I have this sort of zeal to popularize that. And then the music of Gabriel Faure. I don't know why it stirs me the way it does, but it moves me so much. I mean, Gabriel, my son, is all named after Fore. Ah, really? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, there's something about it. Something There's something magical, mystic, ecstatic about it. And I can't understand why he's not more popular. You know, the sort of people who, I think the most dangerous people are the people who understand a bit about music. People who, unlike you, you, you say you understand nothing about it, you listen to it all the time. For me, that's perfect that's fine and the people who really understand it who are rare but the people in the middle who unfortunately a lot of the people who write about music um sometimes not all of them of course but some of them and they for some reason they have their snobs hat they get their snobs hats on about late Schumann and about Faure. they love Debussy and Ravel who are Faure's contemporaries who are also great but certainly no greater than Faure. um and that's what makes me see red so there's a there's a passion there. I would love Fore is the centenary of his death is coming up in two years' time, and I'd love to play a lot of his music then, and just to make it more popular. It's a tiny ambition, but it means a lot to me. Mm. And final question: What advice would you offer to a young person who would love to have a career in music and is worried about economic insecurity and? all of that. What, what do you say to people who, who say to you, oh, I want to be a musician? No, they have to be a musician. It's not a question of wanting. If they're going to be a yeah. musician, they have to be a musician. I mean, I have to say my 20s, my early 20s, anyway, I was trying to survive on six pounds a week on food. Um, but I just couldn't bear the thought of doing sessions or something, which I suppose I could have done, earn money. I just knew I had to try and at least give it my best shot to be a cellist. Um, playing the concerts I wanted to play. I would say never give up your love of music. I mean, I'm shocked by the way people are advised these days, uh, young musicians. I mean, of course, I know many. And they get these, you know, the, the seminars they're given on how to use social media. Yeah, I heard the unbelievable thing the other day that some young musician was told if a musician doesn't have a Rolex watch by the age of 25, he'll never make it. What? <laughs> so what? This was a serious piece of advice. I mean, my God. And then they don't actually teach how to make a phrase. And, um, you know, you have to go your own path, but you have to think of the music, not of the career. And there's a lot of people who are 
you know, just think of the career more than the music and you can tell from the way they play. And as I say, unfortunately, they can be very successful because the people who don't really understand music things are taken in. Um, but I think just hang on to you. I wrote a book of advice for young musicians. Oh, yes. I haven't read that one, not being a young musician, but yes. Well, it's very short and it's based on Schumann's advice to young musicians. So I think, you know, it might apply to journalists as well, writers and journalists as well. Yeah, but I think I start start with advice. Don't ever forget it's the music you love, not the career, nothing else. Yes. It's the music. Just focus on the music above all. Of course, you have to be practical and think you have to earn a living. You have to eat and everything. But if you lose your love of music, you've lost everything, no matter how well you eat. Um, yeah, and that should be absolutely the central guiding force. Uh, just, you know, social media, fine. I mean, I tweet every day. I'm not sure I should, but I do. And I just use it the way I want to use it. Nobody's told me how to do it. And it seems fairly popular. So, um, you know, it's not the central part of my life. The central part of my life is, is the music itself. So that's what I'd say. Remember, don't lose that. Don't be distracted from it. Yes, absolutely. Be practical. You have to sell yourself, unfortunately, and get other people to sell you, uh, you know, sell your talents for you. Um, that was absolutely fine. It's practical, you know, and um, need publicity, et cetera, et cetera but it's only in, in pursuit of a higher goal. That's the thing. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's well, been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I really hope so. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories, and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it, and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter, also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books, or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website, theartofwork.co. And do join me for another podcast next week.